on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. As always, it's a privilege to be here. And if you're new to our station, This uh, time for the next hour is an opportunity if you have a question about God's Word or some challenge you're facing in your personal life or an issue that you'd like to get biblical counsel on, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us direct. The local number is 525-1859. The toll-free number for those listening outside the state of South Carolina is 877 The call letters of the station, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and it will pop up on the screen right in front of us. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, you can simply dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable going on the air live, we always welcome that. Too. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible Lawn. It is indeed, Pastor. I was uh, gone out of town last week, so a number of questions came in. Let's get to them right now. Kelvin from Lancaster, New Hampshire writes, we have some Christian friends who will not attend church on Christmas and Easter service. They say it's a pagan holiday and they celebrate the resurrection each day. Would you give a little history on Easter and why a Christian would not come to church? Our response was, whether it's Christmas, Easter, or July 4th, we attend church because it's the Lord's Day. Well, that was a good response you gave. Uh, It is uh, the Lord's Day. I mean, in a broad sense, every day is to be lived for the Lord. But there is still one in seven that God calls us to set apart to gather with his people. And we find that. In the uh, both by command and by uh, example, in the early church, they met on the first day of the week. The old covenant saints met on the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Uh, God had dictated the Sabbath. Uh, Saturday was the day that his people would meet. But the Lord of the Sabbath, in honor of the resurrection, said, no, the first day of the week now. Uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, but sometimes the way he deals with his people change. Uh, The uh, Ten Commandments still apply today. They may have a different expression in terms of application. For instance, God said uh, in the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's how it's described in the book of Deuteronomy. But in Ephesians 6, uh, Paul uh, broadens the application uh, same command, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. So he moves from the land of Israel to the earth. Same commandment, different application. So because it's the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, we should gather. We shouldn't say, well, because uh, Easter and 
Christmas, uh, you might argue, have pagan origins. Well, it depends what you mean by that. Uh, Maybe the word Easter has some pagan origins. Interestingly, it is used in the King James Version of the Bible, where in Acts they translate Pascha, Easter. Um, But lay that aside. Uh, It is understood, words uh, take meaning in the uh, context in that they're used and in the age in which they're expressed. And so sometimes at different times in human history, a word can mean something entirely different. The word Easter in our day, most people, when you ask them about the etymology of the word, they won't say, well, it comes from Estra and, uh, you know, a pagan goddess. No, they think, oh, that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Still has that connotation. Certainly, it's a secularized holiday in many ways, much like Christmas is. But still, they understand, well, it's in honor of the resurrection. And so words find their meanings in different cultures and in different expressions. So, yeah, in the truest sense, uh, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day. Uh, But what an opportunity that Christians found in the early centuries to go ahead and take a uh, pagan holiday, say, around Christmas, and to use it to celebrate the Incarnation and as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And think about the millions of people who've been won to Christ during the Christmas season because Christians have highlighted the Incarnation and its purpose, namely the cross and ultimately the resurrection. So uh, your friend, I think, is a little narrow, uh, has lost his perspective and his love for lost people, and that's unfortunate, but I'm glad that you went to church on Easter and maybe you invited some friends. I mean, it's still the two biggest Sundays of the year in America and the single best Sundays out of the whole year to invite a non-Christian when they will be most responsive. So, yeah, you take advantage of that. All right, let's go. Uh, let's go to our live caller who's waiting. Rick. Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Doctor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, this past Sunday, I was listening to a song on the radio, and it, and it talked about we're, you know, a child of the King. And immediately, my thought went to Jesus because he's referred to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that that uh, kind of jog my memory of a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. I I apologize, I can't remember exactly where in Isaiah it is, but it's uh, brought up every Christmas about him talking about the coming of Jesus. He'll be called a mighty counselor, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in there it says something like, and correct me if I'm wrong, loving father. Now, I know in the Trinity you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is the Son, then why is he referred to as Father? That's a good question. Uh, Let me read it to you. It's from Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness for then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He's speaking of a promise that God first revealed in Second Samuel 7 concerning Messiah, that one would come from David's lineage who would have an eternal kingdom. And, of course, uh, Isaiah tightens the prophecy a little bit, and he says a child's going to be born to us. 
And the child's name is going to be called, among other things, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, he is Mighty God. By the way, when you deal with Jehovah's Witnesses who show up at your door, and they just showed up at my door last week, um, when I was at home studying, and uh, they knocked on the door, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I said, well, do you believe it's possible for uh, God to become a man? And they said, well, almighty God. And I said, yes. They said, no. I said, well, the prophet says a baby's going to be born and the baby's name will be called mighty God. And now this was a new one for me from them. They said, well, um, yeah, that's uh, that that's Jesus. This is the first time I've ever seen them respond on this level, because most of the time they don't even know uh, the Isaiah, Isaiah nine prophecy. Um, and, uh, but they said that says mighty God and Jesus is a mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. And so they had some little play on words. And I said, well, actually mighty God and almighty God is used interchangeably in the word of God. Uh, for instance, uh, the mighty one, the Lord. And if you have the NASB, it's capital L capital O capital R, capital D, um, you will see in the New American Standard so that you can see the fine nuance in our English text. Uh, God the Father is translated God, G-O-D, Elohim, uh, or um, capital L, small letter O, small letter R, small letter D, Adonai, which is translated Lord, another name for God. And then capital L-O-R-D, all in caps, and that's for the consonants Y-H-W-H. Now, depending on how you point that, because in Hebrew, when a Jew reads Hebrew, uh, most Jews read what's called unpointed Hebrew, and that is um, uh, their mind supplies the vowels. All they're reading is consonants. And so if I could give you an example, let's say I had the word ran, R-A-N, um, in English, the consonants would just be R-N, and your mind would supply the vowel A. Well, the challenge that happened through the centuries is that uh, God's people got away from reading the Hebrew scriptures through the diaspora. Dia meaning through, spora, seed. They were spread like seed, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar when the time of the Gentiles began and uh, the Assyrian invasion and so forth during that whole time frame in human history. And they still are under the time of the Gentiles. And so what happened is a lot of Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so there came a time where some of them were a little bit nervous. Well, we don't want to mispronounce God's name. Should it be uh, vocalized Yahovah and put the vowels in that order, or should it be Yahweh? Well, um, they didn't want to say it wrong because they viewed the proper name of God to be so sacred. When they came to these constants, YHWH, they just said Adonai. But here's my point. He's speaking of Yehovah or Yahweh. It doesn't matter. It's the proper name for God and the mighty one. So God's called the mighty one here in Psalm 50 in verse 1. Uh, same is true uh, in uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, is called the mighty God. Uh, so the same term is used interchangeably. But Jesus is also called, Messiah is also called eternal father. Why is that? 
because as many as received him, to them he has given the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so Jesus Christ is the author of our salvation, as the writer to the Hebrews says. He's the one who makes it possible for us to become children of God. And so just as the prophet will later say in Isaiah chapter 53, where again, it's, it's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross describing seven centuries before what will happen. And God describes uh, Messiah's work in Isaiah 53 and how he would offer himself as a guilt offering that um, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. What offspring? Speaking of a spiritual offspring. So in that sense, he is indeed the eternal father. So um, great question. Appreciate it. I think someone else is waiting on the line patiently, and we are grateful for that. If you want to call us, give us the numbers again, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Let's go to our live caller. Thanks for standing by. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning, Rick. Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Well, I'm going to promise not to ask you any questions about Uriah, but I would like to ask you something about your sermon the past few weeks in uh, Romans one, Romans 7, 1, 2, 3. Okay. Uh, the wife and I have been getting into some interesting discussions at the dinner table over over your sermons, or I suppose I should say lessons. Uh, this revolves around the concept of the adultery. A husband divorces his wife. He's either been adulterous or not, but he divorces his wife and marries another. The eyes of the Bible, he's looked on as an adulterer and vice versa. Now, if I'm, if I'm reading what you're saying right or understanding it right, if perchance that same husband, while still married to the first wife, dies, she's free of that marriage and she can marry again. That's correct. Okay. If he does not die, they divorce and she remarries. Both her and the man she remarries become the adulterer and adulteress. And it's vice versa, male for female, female, either way. The the question I have, the point of contention seems to be at the the point where death comes in, my wife seems to think that she's absolved of the sin because the former husband, now dead, she's no longer married to him, therefore she's no longer adulterer, having been remarried. I seem to think that the sin is a sin, and you're convicted of the sin until you seek forgiveness at the cross. Okay, let me see if I can comment. Let me give some context because maybe some people are not following the series in Romans that I'm preaching at Community Bible Church that is posted online each week for people to either be able to download or to watch live stream. Paul is, of course, speaking of our relationship to the law, and he's trying to help us to see uh, that the Christian in one sense has died to the obligations of the law. Uh, in terms of a basis of acceptance before God. And the reason we were able to die is because when Jesus died, we died with him. When you are saved, you're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Paul says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined or married, you could translate it as in the um, uh, NIV or even the King James, though the Greek text does say joined, but that's the thought. He's talking about married. So then, if while her husband is living, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law 
so that she is not an adulteress, though she be joined, same word, or married to another man. What's his point? His point is, of course, in the broad context, is that our death with Christ severs our acceptance before God through law obedience, which is impossible because the law could never save us. It only revealed us, showed us that we were sinners. But he uses an illustration about marriage to teach that truth. His obviously focus is not to speak primarily on marriage and divorce, but whenever Paul or Jesus in a parable or an illustration speaks a truth, it's always to teach truth. He doesn't use error to teach error. He uses truth to speak truth. And so he's very clear that the only thing that severs the marriage relationship is death. And that's consistent, of course, with what Jesus said in Luke sixteen eighteen. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Or in the uh, Markin passage in Mark you just turn there real fast. Mark 10, again, you have a very straightforward uh, declaration. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another woman, she is committing adultery. So again, that's consistent with what Paul is telling us. Paul obviously gets it from the Lord Jesus, and he gets it, he says, from what God originally intended in Genesis, that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Consequently, they're no longer two but one, and what God has joined, let no man divorce, let no man separate. Now, so you have these three specific, straightforward statements in Mark 10, 11 and 12, Luke 16, 18, Romans 7, 2 and 3, no exception, period. Now, there are two exceptions that are found in the Gospels. They're repeated. Uh, They're almost identical. Uh, One is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The other is found in Matthew 19. Uh, Let me just read that account in Matthew 19. Of course, he's being questioned. Uh, by the Pharisees, they're testing him, the Bible says, concerning is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And of course, this was a point of debate. And by the way, this is the same uh, situation that's described in Mark 10. The only difference is, is Mark does not add this little exception, as Luke does not add the exception, but Luke's account was on an entirely different occasion. But these two accounts... Mark 10, Matthew 19 are parallel accounts. Same situation. Of course, in Jesus' day, there were two principal schools of thought, and the point of debate was over a passage that was found uh, in the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and so on. So the point of debate was, what was that some undecency uh, that he found? And of course, he goes on to say, if he divorces her and then marries a second time and then divorces his second wife and goes back to his first wife, that that's an abomination before the Lord because it's tantamount basically to legal adultery. But again, the point of debate was over 24-1. What was that some undecency that he found? And there were two principal schools of thought in the first century. 
uh, represented by two principal rabbis in the first century. One was Rabbi Hallel and uh, others like him. And I think I quoted a couple of rabbis in my sermon a few weeks back. And they said some indecency was any problem you could find. You didn't like the way your wife cooked a meal. She put too much salt in it, Hillel said. Well, that's reason for divorce. Or uh, you found a wife that's prettier than your wife in your eyes. That was reason for divorce. Any reason at all. The school of Shammai uh, narrowed it to a sexual offense. Well, Jesus seemingly took it way above either school. And of course, um, he says, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But this was not God's plan, he says, from the beginning. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, that's me reading it without the exception clause. Let me read it with the exception clause. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, uh, the King James says, except for uh, fornication. The NIV says, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, in every English translation, they use two different English words, from the exception clause to the end result. And there are two different Greek words in Greek. Uh, I say to you, ever divorces his wife except for porneia, and marries another woman, commits moikeia. So why two different Greek words? It does not read, I say to you, ever divorces his wife except for moikeia, adultery, and marries another, commits moikeia, adultery. So the point of Rob is, what does the exception clause refer to, and why does only Matthew refer to it? Why doesn't Mark and Luke refer to it? And so uh, there have been two principal views, and then there are some fine nuances off of those views. But the two principal views in the history of the church is that the exception clause is found only in Matthew's account because he's referring to Jewish people who practice what was called betrothal. When you were betrothed, uh, and I know our newer translations today sometimes say engaged. The problem with that is it communicates the thought, but not strongly enough. It helps us to understand betrothal in one respect, because typically people, when they get engaged, they're planning to get, quote unquote, married. Uh, And so they need an English word to try to capture the truth. The downside of it is it doesn't really capture betrothal. And so some translations actually use both words, and they basically say, you figure it out. Or they're trying to use different words so that people are highlighted in their thinking so that they'll maybe ask some serious questions. And this is always the challenge of translation. When you take the original word and you move it into the receptor language, what word best typifies that word? And sometimes there's not a single word that captures it. So uh, some take the betrothal clause is the exception clause that he's saying because they were considered husband and wife. And that's what it's like when you're betrothed, unlike engagement. There are four examples in the Old Testament where you have two people who are betrothed, though the relationship hadn't been consummated and they're called husband and wife. Now, we wouldn't say that with engagement, would we? We wouldn't say, well, he's the husband of uh, Mary or she's the wife of Joseph when they're engaged. But they did in Jewish culture. Because it was that strong, and it was so strong a bind that a certificate of divorce would have to be written to break off the betrothal arrangement. And so Joseph in the New Testament is called the husband of Mary, yet they're only betrothed. 
the relationship had not been consummated. And so when he finds out she's pregnant, being a righteous man, because he loved her, he's not going to do it publicly. He's going to do it secretly, but he's going to put her away. And that same word, put her away, is often translated. In fact, in many English translations, is translated in that verse, divorce. He's going to divorce her. Why? Because that's how tight the betrothal compact was. And so if during the betrothal, the partner had been unfaithful, then the marriage contract was not basically being delivered in the way it was agreed upon, and it was allowed to be broken. And so in the history of the church, some have taken this exception clause to be found only in Matthew, because Matthew is the Jewish gospel writing to Jews who practice betrothal, and therefore um, it referred to them. And to them only, and so there might be no parallel today unless you were an Orthodox Jew who practiced betrothal. Um, the other view, which interestingly was introduced in the 1540s by a gentleman by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus was a Roman Catholic theologian. He, he debated L- Martin Luther tooth and nail over the issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And people debate whether or not we'll see him in heaven, what he meant by some of his phraseology and everything else. I'm not, I don't want to get into that discussion. He did do a translation uh, of the Greek New Testament, and it became the basis uh, for Martin Luther. He took a lot of the manuscripts and created a uniformed Greek New Testament. Uh, a few places he was challenged, like at the end of Revelation, Uh, They didn't have at that time any manuscript, so he actually took the Latin text and put it into Greek, Um, and that's reflected in the King James, but Erasmus knew that they would find more manuscripts and that uh, he would be able to tweak that later on, but it didn't happen in his lifetime. But Erasmus took it that this was a reference to sexual immorality after a couple had been married and their relationship had been consummated. And that, understandably, is now the most popular view, that when a person marries and their spouse cheats on them, so to speak, commits adultery, that they are allowed to write a certificate of divorce to get divorced. Um, And it's argued that under Old Testament Jewish law, if someone had been unfaithful, they'd be stoned to death since they didn't have capital punishment in their right to exercise in the first century, that this, in essence, was God's permission. So people take it in one of those two realms. Now, even in the broader realm that Erasmus introduced, that it's a reference to adultery after marriage, those who are trying to be faithful to the text would say that the innocent party has freedom to remarry only the innocent party. Now, if the truth were known, most second marriages today are not built over adultery or Uh, You know, where I'm an innocent party and I have freedom to remarry or any of those circumstances. We live in a sexually charged, sexually immoral society and married people have affairs with other people. And before you know it, they cancel one wedding, one marriage, and they start another. So that's the day we live in. Now, uh, but my point is, is even in the broadest interpretation most people today can't say, yeah, God, God sanctions this marriage. So then the question becomes, well, what do I do? Well, you can't unscramble eggs. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, whatever state you find yourself in, stay in it. In other words, uh, I, a man came to me many years ago and he said, Pastor, I've been studying what the Bible says about 
divorce and remarriage. I've studied the betrothal view. I've studied the adultery view. He said, um, I fall into the latter, um, except I cheated on my wife. I was married to her for three years. I divorced her and married the girlfriend that, um, you know, I cheated with, and we've had five children together. What should I do? Uh, I realized that what I did was wrong. I said, well, you can't unscramble eggs. But you deal honestly with what you've done. You don't make excuses and say, well, my ex was this and my ex was that. And hey, listen, God's ideal is clear. And the problem is, is we're watering down God's ideal today. And pastors don't care anymore. And there are no standards anymore in terms of what God says concerning right and wrong. And this comes up all the time. It's coming up in this recent election that we're facing, you know, where we have a man who cheated on his wife. And what, what, what because he's engaged her, that, that makes it okay when he still has the opportunity to be reconciled to his first wife. Oh, she divorced him. It's not over until she remarries. And then it's impossible to reconcile. And so, and and I'm not saying he has freedom to remarry then. I'm just telling you that in the broadest sense, he still has a responsibility to reconcile to his wife. He isn't repentant of anything. He hasn't gotten forgiveness from anything. He's doing an evil thing. And that's a sad day when we call evil good and good evil. So only deaths dissolves the marriage bond. That's what God says. Now, I can't twist the word of God, manipulate the word of God to make you feel good. But I would say this is that many couples who entered wrongly into a second marriage, when they have dealt with it honestly before God, number one, it lifts a cloud off their home and it frees God to bless that marriage. And number two, it helps the next generation not to repeat their mistakes. If we rationalize habitually what we've done, then we're basically saying to our kids, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, if it doesn't work out, divorce the bum, divorce the lady. You need to be happy. And holiness is lost. So that's the day we live in. And uh, it was much like Jesus' day, but we're not surprised because the days of the second coming will be similar to the days of the first coming. Let's go to the next caller who's been waiting patiently. All right, indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Yes, hi, good morning. Uh, this question revolves around election and predestination. I was uh, recently conversing with a campus minister, and he was taking a very hyper-Calvinistic approach, quoting Ephesians 1, and he used an, an analogy where he said that if somebody does not eat for two weeks and is put before a buffet, then he will kind of have no choice but to eat food. And he was trying to say that that's God's way of relentlessly pursuing someone. And, you know, I take a more approach of a little further away where I have to reconcile verses in Romans 8 and 1 Peter where it talks about the foreknowledge of God. And he was he put a, two questions before me that I'd like to get your opinion on. The first one was, he said, if God's will is for a man to become a Christian and he overwhelmingly pursues a man to become a Christian, and I think of Daniel 4 where he just pursues King Nebuchadnezzar, and if man's will is for him not to become a Christian, he kind of put it at whose will is going to win. And the second one he said that I thought was interesting, where he said, if God were to look down time and see the foreknowledge of who would become a Christian, then that means that God is predestined to somebody based off what man does in terms of based off man's, almost he put it as a work where he accepts the gift, and based on that, God writes his name in the book of life. So 
I'd just like to get your opinion on that. Well, I appreciate the question. And um, again, it becomes an issue in definition of foreknowledge. And those who are listening to our series in Romans, and they're posted uh, usually by Monday uh, for people to be able to listen to it, uh, we'll touch on it a little bit in Romans 8, but we will dig deep into these issues of predestination and election when we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, it is true that the Bible says God in Ephesians 1 chose us or elected us, you could translate it, before the foundation of the world. So, very clearly, the Bible does teach the doctrine of sovereign election. The question is, on what basis does God elect us? That becomes the issue. So, you have the guys like, you know, Charles Head and Spurgeon, where he said, well, you know, we're all worthy of hell and damnation, and that God would reach down and rescue any from that damnation uh, was the mercy of God Almighty. And, and some would, um, but then some would read Spurgeon and say, no, he, he didn't hold that position. And it's really interesting because you got different quotes by Spurgeon at different times in his life when he wrote different commentaries that you know, seemingly opens it up for debate. In some people's mind, there is no debate. The thought is sealed. Then you have your double predestinationists who, who basically says that, oh, God predestined one person for hell, created him for hell, for an object of his wrath, to display the glory of that aspect of God's character. And God uh, predestined another person for salvation. So you have uh, double predestination or double election. But let me first just say the word predestination is very sloppily used today. And again, we will study this in great depth and detail when we uh, come to this section in our study of Romans. But for instance, in Romans 8, and there is a distinction in the word of God between predestination and election. But I use the word very loosely to illustrate my point. In Romans 8, it says he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he glorified. Well, what did God predestined us to, to be? Well, to become conformed to the image of his son. So predestination is that process after you are saved by which God commits himself to forming and shaping the image of Jesus Christ into your life. Now, election is a more refined word that speaks of God's choosing. So all biblical Christians believe in the doctrine of election. The question that is the point of Rob is on what basis does God elect? Does God just, um, based on his sovereign will, choose some and overlook or even create others for damnation? Or does God in his prior knowledge... And you can illustrate the word foreknowledge in many instances, proganoskel, to mean God's prior knowledge, that God foreknew before the foundation of the world that his son would die, that what happened in Jerusalem was according to the predetermined plan in prior knowledge, foreknowledge of God. So some would define foreknowledge as God's prior knowledge, and some would put more meat to the word and say that it's God's choosing. Well, it it maybe is semantical, but I don't think so. And again, I will go through every illustration of foreknowledge in the Word of God when we come to this section 
in the book of Romans. So hold on to it. But what your friend is basically saying is that God is somehow less sovereign because he looks down the corridors of time, sees how a person will respond, and now God is subject to man's will. Well, is it not equally possible that God in his sovereign will chose to give man free will? That God sovereignly chose and allowed that to happen. And let me just say that the Arminian view is equally wrong, that man makes the decision independently of God, that man all on his own is able to come to Christ. That's certainly wrong because there's none who seeks God, no, not one. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So dead men don't have any capability to do anything. So the initiative does begin with God. And God does woo people. The question, does he woo all equally? And I would say yes. And God, because he takes the initiative, if he didn't, we would all be damned. That's how rebellious our nature is. We wouldn't on our own naturally seek God. You say, well, I can't remember when I didn't seek God. That was only because of God's sovereign placement of you in this world. Maybe you had parents and grandparents who prayed for you from the time you were an infant. Or God initiated with you because of their prayers earlier in life than maybe someone else. But you don't do theology by experience. You do theology by scripture. And experience must be subject to the ultimate authority of the word of God. So God in his sovereignty has given man a free will. That doesn't make God any less sovereign, as your friend would argue. Um, So God can equally be sovereign and man can equally be free. What makes man free will able to even function is because God takes the first initiative. So there's truth in some aspects of Calvinistic thought. Now, your friend, if he's a hyper-Calvinist, as you describe him, also doesn't believe that Jesus died for everybody. He doesn't believe that you can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you. Jesus Christ died for you. They would say, well, you can't go up to anyone on the street and say that because you don't know if he's an elect member, if God's chosen him. And only if he believes and comes to genuine conversion can they say, well, God really, truly loves you. So when for God so loves the world, they don't mean world to refer to world, but to the world of the elect. Um, Listen, the plain reading of scripture, I think, is clear. And I think you have to be educated into the position that they hold, that no one just reading scripture on their own would come up to those conclusions. Um, Every once in a while, I meet someone, I just figured this out on my own. No, you didn't. You didn't figure it out. Don't lie to me. Uh, you, You read somebody who tried to convince you, if you had just read the Bible on your own, you never would have come up with that. Uh, you would have uh, you would have come up with the view that God loves the whole world, that Jesus died for every man, and that you can say to anyone that God really loves you and really wants you to be saved. That it's not some you know feigned invitation; it's a real invitation. Um, and if a man goes to hell, it's not God's fault; it's his own fault because he rejected the revelation that God gave in creation, or ultimately through His Son. Again, that's just a really short answer. We're going to spend some weeks on this. So stay tuned for our series on Romans. And if you don't have a church, come this Sunday as we continue to explore Romans verse by verse. Let's go to the next question or caller. All right. A caller dictated their question. They have a sister who recently moved, and she's been talking with a man who says he's been anointed by God to teach. He is telling this woman's sister that We don't go to heaven the minute we die. Rather, he says that we sleep until Christ returns for us. 
This woman knows Luke 23, 43, where Jesus Christ tells the criminal that today he'll be in paradise with him. What other scriptures can she use to demonstrate the absent from the body present with the Lord concept? Well, certainly the one you just quoted. Um, and sometimes people don't know that that's actually in the Bible. They think that, well, that's a, a phraseology to uh, communicate what the Bible teaches. No, Paul says... Um, very plainly, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8. So that's an excellent text of Scripture right there. To be absent from the body is indeed to be at home with the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. When the Bible describes sleep, it's not describing the state of the soul, but it's describing the state of the body. And that's clear from passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Apostle Paul says, we don't want you to be about ignorant about those who are asleep. The New Translations say dead. Um, but it's not the typical word for death from necros. It's the word for sleep. And so it's better to translate it as sleep because he's describing the temporary state of the body. Just as you laid down last night on the bed and you got up this morning, well, there's going to be a great getting up day when people are getting get up out of the graves, wherever they've been buried or however they've been disintegrated. God's going to raise the body. Those will hear the voice of the Son of God and there will be a resurrection to life and to judgment. He says, so we don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what we believe, that's that's our confession of faith at baptism and the death and resurrection of Jesus to save us. It's it's a um, first class conditional statement in the Greek. It's assumed to be true. Just like when Satan said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He didn't question that he was God the Son. It was assumed as true. Uh, that's why he gave him the kind of temptation he gave him. He, he, he wouldn't say, Carl, you know, if you really want to obey God, turn these stones into bread. I don't have the capacity to turn rocks into loaves of bread. But Jesus did because of who he was. Well, if we believe and we do that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him. What does that mean? God will bring with him. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Where's he? What do you mean? Where's Jesus coming from? Heaven. What happens when you die? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the person inside of your earthly space suit goes home to be with Jesus. That's why he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Their body's in the grave. But their person inside that body is up in heaven. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who fall asleep. Because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's bringing from heaven the departed spirits. He will, with a shout, raise their bodies. The two will be united. Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the air, and thus will always be with the Lord. Another text that you might want to consider is found here in the book of Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is no gain in death if I sleep in the grave. 
Paul said, listen, I, everything about my life is the Lord Jesus. He enjoyed the fellowship of knowing Christ, as he'll describe a little bit later in this letter. But he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh and the body, well, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be where? Be in the grave? Asleep? No. I am hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So when you die, you depart and you're with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why to live as Christ, to die is a gain. Why? Because there's more of Christ. You're actually in his presence. You might want to go online and uh, listen to my sermon uh, on Philippians 1, 21 to 23. If you go to searchthescriptures.org. Uh, I've preached the book of Philippians, so you can just scan through Philippians. Oh, yeah, that's the text I want. And I go through about 10 passages that teach the truth absent from the body, present with the Lord. But I gave you a few to get started. Let's go to our next caller or question. All right. Carl from Somerville writes, "Um, I'd like your thoughts on those who today call themselves prophets and apostles. I understand that some may have apostolic gifts, but I believe that the office of the apostle no longer exists. I believe it's confusing for church leaders to refer to themselves in this way, especially to new Christians. The pastoral epistles give us the blueprint regarding the leadership for the New Testament church. Your thoughts, please, and thank you so much for your ministry. Well, the point leader in a New Testament church is God designates him as called elder, bishop, or pastor. Those are three words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office, not of different offices, but of the same office. And that's important to note because I know in some denominations there's a pastor, but then there, or an elder, and then there's a, a, there's a bishop and he's kind of like a super elder, so to speak, a super pastor, but that's not really the new Testament pattern. There's not a hierarchy above the local church. Now there might be a bishop or an elder who oversees uh, the church in a city that meets in many numerous locations But that's different from someone who, say, moves pastors around. And so he says, for instance, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he does. And the word for uh, overseer here in first, I'm reading first Timothy three, one in the old English is translated bishop. Okay, so there it's just a translation issue. Um, But today people still use the term bishop. But King James says bishop, but that's the word. Um, If any man transpires to the office of a bishop or overseer, it's a fine work he does. And then he describes what an overseer must be. In Titus 1, he said, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might put in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. So here he uses a different Greek word. And then... um, He goes on and he says in verse 7, so appoint elders in every city. What's the elder to look like? For the overseer. So he uses two words, presbyteros and episkopos, one bishop, one elder. He says uh, you, you need to appoint elders, and then this is what the bishop should be. So clearly, same office in the same breath uh, used with uh, two different words to describe it. You'll find the same thing in Acts chapter 20. So if we want to really be biblical, 
let's describe the leaders in the New Testament church with the leadership office gift that God gives, and that's pastor or elder or bishop. Now, there is the gift of apostleship. You're right, the office does not exist anymore. To have served in the office, you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have been personally selected by him. And if those two things were true, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says there would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that would accompany your life, giving affirmation of that. There are no apostles today. No one has seen the resurrected Lord in his body. He won't be seen again until he comes in glory. Uh, He's not still choosing apostles. He's not passing the keys down from one apostle to the next. Um, There was a fixed number of apostles. There is no more. Uh, Now, there is the office of apostle, and we usually translate that Uh, excuse me, the gift of apostleship with a different word. That's like the word deacon. The word deacon can be used in a technical sense to refer to the office. So in 1 Timothy 3, he tells us uh, what it looks like for someone who qualifies for the office of deacon. But then it's used in a broad sense, and we usually translate it servant in English to distinguish it from the office. He that would be great among you must be the deacon, same word, the servant of all. Um, In fact, in many languages, they they don't use two different words. They just go with the identical Greek word, and they choose the identical word, and they leave it up to the reader to interpret that there is a distinction being made between responsibility and the office of deacon. Uh, And that's not always that bad. Um, The the problem is, is that maybe someone doesn't read careful. Uh, the bigger problem is, is we take passages that are just describing servanthood and we make them something that they are not. So we speak of Phoebe and she's a, a feminine form of the word deacon. She's a servant. She's not a serving in the office of deacon. And the argument is extremely weak for those who would try to make it from that text. But usually churches where it says out front, apostle so-and-so, they're not talking about gift and they've, they've, uh, They've injected into that title a whole lot more than what the New Testament gives them freedom uh, to call themselves. So if we want to be true to Scripture, call yourself what the New Testament uses to describe the office. There is no office of apostleship, so you're right. There is a gift of apostleship, but you don't describe yourself with the gift. You describe yourself with the office. That's the pattern in the New Testament. He doesn't call people with gifts of apostleship in Acts 20. He calls the elders, those who serve in the office. That's what God designates as the leadership term. Again, the problem is, is that people who will say, I'm apostle so-and-so, that they mean a whole lot more than the New Testament gives them freedom to mean. And they're usually very dangerous in their theology. So, no, I think I'm with you. I don't, I don't like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the next question. All right. Rosie from Bluffton writes, do evil spirits roam on earth and can they reveal themselves to young children? Well, um, there are indeed, you know, evil spirits that are at work. Daniel 10 illustrates uh, the fact that there is a um, invisible war uh, that's going on in the heavenly places. Uh, Paul warns us also in Ephesians chapter 6 of this identical truth uh, where he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why? Because we don't 
uh, war against uh, flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there are spiritual battles that are going on in the invisible realm. And Paul says, you think the battle is with flesh and blood, your neighbor. It's not. There is an invisible battle that's working behind your neighbor. And so you need to be in tune to that. So, um, yeah, evil can express itself in many ways. And we often think of it, you know, in a very overt way where the devil comes with his pitchfork and his cloven hoofs and his appointed tail. But the truth is, is most of the time when the devil comes, he, he comes as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his servants, so don't his ministers, Paul argues in Second Corinthians. So we need to be alert to it. The devil can manifest himself to anyone. Certainly in homes, too, where parents have given themselves up to evil spirits, and they've invited the devil into the, their own lives for possession. In homes like that, sometimes children will encounter more overtly these demonic spirits because of their parents. Now, it's not hopeless for them because, again, the Bible reminds us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You might want to listen to my series on fallen angels. and You can go to search the scriptures, and I don't think you can download that, but I think you can order it at searchthescriptures.org, and I do a whole series on what the Bible says about fallen angels. Let's go to the next question. I think we got time for maybe one more. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, do that one. Um, let me go there real quick. Bear with me one second. Uh, Bob from Dunstable, Mass., writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. Um, I wanted to compliment you on your radio broadcast. I hear you at WDER in New Hampshire, and... Um, that's just a word of affirmation. Oh, okay. I don't think it's a question. And then uh, Bill from Concord. I appreciate Concord, it. Thank uh, you for your encouragement, uh, Bob from Dunstable. <laughs> uh, Bill uh, from Concord, New Hampshire, wants to know who Jesus is referring to in John nineteen eleven. Let me just go there real fast. John chapter 19 and verse 11. Um, there we read, uh, oh, yeah, this is the situation where Jesus is uh, before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has a greater sin. So your question is, who is the he in the verse? Well, it's not Judas because Judas uh, delivered uh, the Lord Jesus to to the Jews. Um, ultimately, it was Caiaphas. If you remember, there were, there were six trials of Christ, three religious uh, three uh, secular. And so he went from Annas, the high priest, his father-in-law, to Caiaphas. He was the appointed high priest, the puppet high priest that Rome recognized. And then the parallel account in Mark 14, it tells us, and in Matthew 27, if I remember, first couple of verses, um, it tells us that Caiaphas is the one who delivered him over to Pilate. Uh, the bigger question is, why did he have a greater sin? We should answer that next time. It's too important to leave hanging here. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today for the Bible Line.